Today is what I would call a cheat day when it comes to Advent. And I mean, who doesn't love a good cheat day or maybe for you every day is a cheat day. But what I mean by it being a cheat day is that we've read some texts the last couple of weeks that have been difficult texts. They've been weighty and they've maybe even made us feel a bit unsettled as we think about Christmas. But today is what is known in various settings as Gaudete Sunday, which in English translates to Rejoice Sunday. And as you noticed in the text that we've read and as the joy candle was lit, that this Sunday is about rejoicing and being filled with joy as we anticipate and we wait for Christmas. But for some of you, the emotions around this time may not be feelings of joy. The weeks leading into Christmas tend to bring out all sorts of feelings and emotions within us. For some, it might be a sense of panic as Amazon maybe isn't guaranteeing shipping before Christmas on certain items. For others, it may draw out feelings of sentiment and nostalgia as it brings us back to our upbringing. For others, maybe it's this feel of greater stress around the holidays due to the demand, whether that's from families, work, or just general expectations of life. But there's something about this time of year that draws out these deeper emotions within us. There's something about a world that's constantly showing us bright lights and always showing us commercials of what appear to be happy people that we can feel this pressure and this need to have it all together. It can then lead us to believing that having joy as a follower of Jesus is about never being stressed or never being worried or fearful or grieving. Yet we all live in a world where we experience these things where pain is a reality, grief and loss happen more than we would maybe like to admit, and we wrestle with unmet expectations and the loss of identity that it can leave within us. And it's within this tension that we wrestle through our text together today, and because this is the really beautiful part of the Advent season, that while the world rushes to presence under the tree, that as a church, we pause and we wrestle through the hard yet very real aspects of life. But we wrestle through them not with a hopeless moaning, but with a hopeful expectation as we look to the answer that arrives at Christmas and all that that means for us. Sharon Hod Miller uh, on her Twitter account this past week posted this comment, comment which I loved, where she said, Advent is when we remember that pain, sorrow, tragedy, and darkness are not out of place at Christmas. They are the precise reason that Christmas came. And it's this darkness and pain and suffering and judgment that we'll work through today to help us arrive at a place of joyful expectation. Because to have joy is not to ignore the parts that have gone wrong. Rather, we must acknowledge their existence and be reminded of how God answers the painful realities we feel in various ways. In Fleming Rutledge's book called Advent, she mentions a comment that someone said that deeply resonated with her feelings surrounding Advent. As they said, I love the darkness and the anticipation of promise to be fulfilled. It is the contrast of what is and what is promised. And Fleming then goes on to comment that Advent is about delayed gratification. Advent teaches us to wait. Advent shows us how to be empty, living in the anticipation of promise to be fulfilled. Advent teaches us to recognize this grace, to turn aside from our own devices and to wait in the darkness with patience for the promised time of fulfillment. And I love this comment as it relates to joy because joy is an outpouring of something. It's not just something that we choose to have, but rather it's something received because we've been given relief from something. But we can also have joy because we know what is still coming. It's an anticipation. 
but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. If you've been a part of the last couple of weeks, we've been working through the lectionary as we work through Advent, as we work towards Christmas. And the lectionary is a book that's used by members of the church worldwide that have scriptures selected for each day that people around the globe are reading through. And so the unique part about it is knowing that Jesus' followers around the world are looking at these exact same texts. And so today we get texts found within Zephaniah, which again has been read already, and a text found within Luke that we'll look at in a few moments here. Now, although the text within Zephaniah we read is, is encouraging, it's important for us to understand that the first two chapters within Zephaniah are comments of judgment against Jerusalem and contain some of the most vivid and graphic language of judgment found anywhere in Scripture. And then when we begin Zephaniah 3, it's actually about how there's going to be a cleansing of the whole land. And so some of you now are maybe not trusting my cheat day analogy at the start and thinking that this is one of those healthy snacks that people tell you is like eating real dessert, like avocado brownies. Call them what you want, but it's not real dessert. But I promise we'll get there. We have full calorie brownies today. This is all happening though before our reading that we find in Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 14 to 20. Now, there's a story of a French priest in Rwanda who's following the terrible genocide in 1994, and he was asked a question of whether this experience had shaken his faith in God. And his reply is shocking because he replies with, absolutely not, but what happened in this country has destroyed my faith in mankind forever. In Rwanda these days, even atheist has a hard time pushing away the thought that God is a better bet than man. It's a profound statement from someone who had seen incredible injustice. And it's from this place that many of the Old Testament, uh, Testament writers write from and prophets write from as they resonate with this. They had lost their faith in humankind. Everywhere they looked, it appeared to be corrupt and they saw only one response from God, which was to come and to judge because how else was God going to deal with the wickedness within all of humanity? And it's in this moment of understanding what's happening around God's people that we can also learn that the meaning of the name of Zephaniah means God hides. And now names culturally were very significant. And so there's a message of judgment in the middle of their despair and their pain and their suffering that's coming from someone with the name God hides. Have you ever felt that way as you navigated life, that while you're navigating maybe deep pain or sorrow or grief and suffering, that it feels like God's hidden from you? Because I have. I've asked God about where the judgment is against the unexplainable wrongs that have happened in my life, and maybe you have too. Maybe it's shown up in different ways where you've looked at the world and you've asked why God appears to be hidden. When you look at the brokenness of poverty around the world or the suffering of people that's caused by other humans in terrible ways. And I wonder if our pain surfaces more at Christmas because it's a part of the Christmas story and it's a part of the groaning and the processing deep within us that longs for things to be different, for God to not feel hidden from the world. But what about the flip side of that conversation? And it's an uncomfortable one for us to consider, but we cannot forget about the judgment we deserve. Because the, you see, the people of Israel were deep in idolatry and they were arrogant in believing in their own greatness and their own ability to function on their own. It's why they're facing judgment. 
But the truth is, is that we're not any different as we've all played a part in the brokenness of the world around us by the things that we've done and the things we've left undone. And that we too can find ourselves in idolatry to various things or ways of being and we can function from a posture of arrogance, believing that we're so great that we can take care of things on our own. And so we have to acknowledge and not exclude ourselves from the conversation surrounding judgment. It's uncomfortable, but we all deserve it too. Now, I told you it was a cheat day for Advent reading, so let's move towards this Rejoicing Sunday because Advent is where faith in humanity ends and where the message of Christmas begins. And so I want us to begin to work through this Zephaniah text together, beginning with Zephaniah 3 in verses 14 to 20, where we discover a promise of restoration and redemption. Now, if you notice at the start, there's this call to rejoice and to sing out while things are falling apart and they're facing judgment. And it's interesting because in verse 15, the language is that God has taken away the judgment and turned away their enemies. But how can this be? And this is where the beautiful language begins to come in that it can be easy to miss when we just have a quick read over a text and continue on. But if we look in the second half of verse 15 and then again in verse 17, we get this language of the Lord who is in your midst. That is significant language. That the promise for the people of Zephaniah was that the Lord was in their midst. That, well, Zephaniah's name may mean that God hides and they're facing this judgment, that it's not judgment that's going to get the final word. That, in fact, it's in where we feel judged that we find God giving a different answer. And it's important for us to remember that it's God who does the work and change within us. I mean, as we get to Christmas time, we find a culture that also begins to think about New Year's resolutions and ways we believe we're going to change ourselves. But when it comes to following Jesus, this just isn't how it works. But rather, change is going to happen as we begin to release things over to God. You see, it's important to remember that the Bible is not a self-help book. And if you find it in that section at the bookstore, I give you full permission to move all of them off that shelf and rearrange the store. Because the Bible is about how God has turned our judgment to restoration, to renewal. And it's in that where we find joy because what we learn is what we deserve, we don't end up receiving. And so Zephaniah goes on to expand and paints this clear picture of what happens when the Lord is in your midst. And it says that you shall fear disaster no more. Now, it's interesting to note that it doesn't mean that there's never disaster, but rather that the fear of it won't paralyze you. We read about how God rejoices over us with gladness, that the Lord loves that you belong to him, that you bear his image. We see that when the Lord is in your midst, that he will renew you with his love, that he'll sing over you, that disaster is removed, that your oppressors will be dealt with, the lame will be saved, the outcast gathered, that shame will be changed to praise, and that we will be brought home and our fortunes will be restored. All of this was written for a group of people who were staring judgment in the face. They were suffering at the hands of others, and they're called to rejoice because of these promises. They're called to rejoice because the Lord is in the middle of everything that they face. 
Paul goes on to echo this language in Philippians chapter 4 when he says, Rejoice always. Why? Because the Lord is near. That no matter what you face, the peace of Jesus, who is near to you, will guard your hearts and your minds. And this is really the paradox of faith for us. You can know Christmas is coming, but still feel stressed or worried. I mean, whoever started the saying that you see on social media of too blessed to be stressed should be smacked, lovingly, of course. But the reality is, is that stress and anxiety and worry, those are normal things to feel. But we have an offer extended to us in those moments to hand it over to God, who is always near to you. And what you will find if you do that is the ability to rejoice, not because there's never an issue, but because there's a promise fulfilled at Christmas and one still to be completed when all things are completely renewed. So what is the answer God gives to a nation or people that were wondering where God was? The answer was that he was drawing near. And ultimately, the judgment would take place, but not in the way that was anticipated, but rather that it would be taken on by God himself for the sake of the world. You see, God comes near in the person of Jesus. And this is where we find the language around Christmas time of Emmanuel, that God is with us. God draws near to all of humanity, to all of creation in the person of Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus experienced all things of humanity. And so there's not a single thing that we go through that Jesus did not experience himself. And it's that person of Jesus who draws near to each of us, who knows the loss you've experienced because he too experienced loss and draws near to you. He knows what it's like to have unmet longings and experiences the grief in that. He draws near. He's in your midst. And I find this language of being in your midst deeply profound to describe the way that God shows up. Because there's two ways to understand that phrase. One is that it's this surrounding. And the other suggests that it means to be kind of right in the middle. And both are amazing pictures of God and how he's present and becomes present in the person of Jesus. That Jesus comes into the thick of it. He is surrounding and in the middle of everything. And so while things can feel like they're falling apart, God looks at us with love in the middle of it all and reminds us that restoration and redemption is what we're promised. And we have joy as we experience that work and anticipate its completion. You see, the trajectory of the Bible is very different than we may think. Many of us may think it's a book that we read to discover how we get to God. But in Genesis, when things go sideways, God asks the question to Adam and Eve of, where are you? And we see that they're hiding due to shame, which is them afraid of judgment. And we quickly learn that while we thought we were asking this question of, where is God? That the Bible is telling a story of God coming to us. And he's asking, where are you? Why are you hiding? And so the radical discovery becomes that our life is actually about being found and loved and restored by the work of Jesus, rather than it being about achieving things on our own and ourselves. It's about a God who pursues us and draws near to us. 
And then we see in the, the final outcome in Revelation with the new heaven and new earth, it says that the home of God is with his people. When everything is renewed, he will dwell with creation, with his people, and he'll wipe away every tear and death and pain and suffering will be no more for the first things will have passed away. Judgment will still happen, but it's the work of God. The healing of the lame and dealing with the oppressors and God bringing us home, it's all one-sided. It's all the work of God. We see this in the language in the second part of Zephaniah. It's all this phrasing of I as God is talking about what he will do and is doing, which all finds fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Which leads us to our Luke text where John is talking about the coming of Jesus in Luke chapter 3 verses 7 to 19, which says this, it says, John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the ax is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff will, be, will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. Now, this story also shows up in Matthew chapter 3, where we see John say, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. And again, we get this nearness language within the teaching. But we also again see this language of judgment that the people are faced with. That the axe is lying at the root of the trees and the trees that don't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And John is suggesting in this moment, and it's where Advent readings can be a bit startling, that God is going to bring judgment and that judgment will be terrifying. And ultimately, their pedigrees or their lineage can't save them. Their resumes or their self-made identities don't matter, and they should be concerned for themselves. I mean, Merry Christmas, right? Who are you and what have you done? No one cares. God's wrath is coming. It seems a bit tense. I mean, it's like that moment as a child, if you ever had it, where you got in trouble with one parent, and then they said, just wait until your mother or father gets home. And you know there's no number of chores and sucking up that can be done. That, it's going, it, that nothing's going to change the wrath that you're about to receive. This is what John is getting at as he calls the crowd a brood of vipers. Which leads them to asking, well then what should we do? And John basically replies with Google's old motto. Which isn't their motto anymore apparently. Which is slightly concerning because their old motto was simply 
don't be evil. And since Google has removed it, I'm wondering what they're saying with that. But anyways, it's a basic working out of what God wants to do and what it looks like when, when God is in the midst, in the middle of people and humanity. It's people are cared for. People are not oppressed. Evil is avoided. But what has upset John and leading him to calling them this brood of vipers is that they know what to do and aren't doing it. And again, we find ourselves in this uncomfortable space because we must put ourselves in the shoes of these people being told judgment must be faced because we sometimes too participate in evil. But it says people are filled with expectation and they begin questioning if John was the Messiah based on how he's teaching. And John goes on to say, no, it's not me, but someone is coming with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so John is stating that it's not just about being nice. If it was, then John would have been enough. Now, we should all be nice, but we fail at times. And so Jesus is coming to save us because we can't save ourselves. And it's in the work of Jesus that's going to allow us to rejoice in the middle of everything, the good and the bad. But I find it interesting in this text that this language of expectation leads them to questioning. But it's kind of how it works, right? Our expectations begin to shape the questions that we then ask. They assume, you know, how John is talking, it sounds like the way of God. So could he be the Messiah? In our lives, we ask questions of, why am I being treated this way? It's a question we ask when we have unmet expectations within relationships. Why is it snowing again is a question we ask when our expectations are that we receive, you know, Phoenix, Arizona type weather when we live in Calgary. Why am I a failure is a question we ask when we expect to be loved based on our achievements and we fall short. When your spouse or your friend asks, why did you buy me this? They expect you to change your gift because you clearly missed it with your first purchase. And that's simply just a freebie tip for you for this Christmas. But our expectations shape the types of questions we ask of the world and then we ask of God. When we ask why is God hiding or where is God? Well, that's because our expectation we're working with is that God is far from us or isn't interested in what is happening or has left us because of something that we have done or left undone or we assume that's how he works anyways. When we ask the question, where do I see God currently? Well, that's a question that's shaped by the expectation that God is near, that he's in our midst, and we're seeking to see where he's at work, which leads to greater joy. Our expectations shape our questions. John then continues with more judgment language with a winnowing fork and gathering weed and burning the chaff. And this was nerve-wracking language for the people of the time because fire in the Old Testament was not good news. It was about judgment. Now, there's some worship songs out there about the fire falling, and anyone in John's day hearing someone sing that would be moving away from you, and they would be singing, Do not let the fire fall on me, Lord. But this is how John is interpreting what's going to happen when Jesus comes. There's got to be judgment again, he assumes, but it plays out different than maybe John anticipated. Because Jesus does arrive and does follow John, but when Jesus comes, he takes the judgment. 
He becomes consumed with unquenchable fire on the cross. He took the threshing of the winnowing fork and becomes the chaff so that we, by the Holy Spirit, can become something that bears fruit that lasts, that can participate in God's kingdom work here and now. John had a partial picture of what it will look like when the Messiah arrived. And it's why Jesus is such a big surprise, because he doesn't bring judgment but takes judgment in our place. He becomes the first of the new creation that we're called and invited to participate in. And when it comes fully, it's a reality that has God dwelling with his people where all the oppressed are set free and all the lame are healed and all disaster is removed and all fear is gone. And this is the good news and the hope that is found in Jesus. And it's why we can rejoice, even in the middle of worries and stress and anxiety, because God has drawn near and continues to draw near. And it's the truth that God is not stagnant, but is active in moving creation towards fulfillment on a large and a personal scale. And so we're invited twofold to be a part of showing the world what it looks like when God is in the middle of things by participating in the healing of culture and caring for the vulnerable. That's going to bring joy to others. And we're also invited into receiving the joy that's found in the Lord, who's present to us always in various ways, and who doesn't just keep us at arm's length, but answers our groanings of where is God by coming as a baby and experiencing the world as we did, taking the judgment we deserve so that we may receive the joy of God by the gift of his presence in the spirit. The heart of God longs to bring his people home and everyone is invited to the party. And so what began in Zephaniah is some of the strongest words of judgment and with the reading that we had with some of the most moving descriptions of God's love for his people in his promise of restoration. And so our joy is future, but it's also present in the gifts of the Lord. You see, culturally, we think we must always take care of things ourselves and solve it, but it's a self-absorbed issue that we have. And so the text that we read suggests that God's job is not primarily to tell you what to do, regardless of what some of us think, but rather God's job primarily is to come and to save you, for you to have joy in the midst of this life and beyond because God has drawn near. And the truth is, is we don't save ourselves. And so I love how Rich Viotis reflected on this when he made the comment on his Twitter, just asking a general question. The question was, what if at the end of history, the question God asked us is not whether we abstained from sin, what if the question is, did you enter into the joy that was available to you? That's a changing of a question that comes from a changed expectation. You see, a question of abstaining from sin is focused and expects a distant God who rules with an iron fist, who's ready to punish us and judge us. But a question around entering the joy available to you is shaped with the expectation that God has drawn near that he's in the middle of it all with you, both good and bad, and is restoring things and has a deep love for you and that there's a fullness of life that you can enter into now that's filled with joy because you've been set free in the person of Jesus. You see, at Christmas, we discover that the God we may be thought to be hidden arrives as a baby to change things forever, to take judgment upon himself and to renew all things. 
and we discover that God is near to us in every circumstance. And for that, we can have joy. And so I want us to end our time with a blessing, but I simply want to reread part of Zephaniah over you to be reminded of the God who draws near. And so the Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. He will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. He will deal with all your oppressors at that time. He will save the lame and gather the outcast, and he will change your shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, he will bring you home, at the time when he gathers you, for he will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when he restores your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Grace and peace.